You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Today's guest is Jane Mattingly. Jane is a therapist turned CEO of an eating disorder and body image practice called Recovery, Love, and Care. Jane is 30 years old and lives with progressive chronic illnesses and is newly disabled within the last four years. In this episode, we talk about Jane's recovery from an eating disorder and her experiences living with chronic illness and how her relationship with her body has changed. Jane is truly a beautiful soul and human, and we had such a connecting conversation. If you struggle with body image or body acceptance, chronic illness, or feelings that your body has betrayed you, this episode is for you. And with that, I hope you enjoy this episode of Full and Thriving. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the show. Today, I have Jane Mattingly with me. Jane, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited. I'm so excited to chat with you too. I feel like your journey is so inspiring and so layered and I can't wait to dive in. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) So to start, I'd love to know a little bit about your eating disorder recovery journey. Yeah. So my eating disorder started probably when I was around 10. I think that took a little bit of unpacking to do. I think we all are like, oh, it started around this time, but we then unpack and we're like, nope, it started a lot sooner. And I went through puberty at 10 years old. I'm sure that's like a predetermining factor for eating disorders. We become body conscious at such a young age. I just became really aware of my body again, very body conscious and started restricting and kind of dabbling in those types of things. In no way was I trying to change my body. If anything, I was really aware of my body, how I digested things, my metabolism, how it moved. I became a dancer, which also added to things very subjective art. And I was one of those cases that unfortunately happened so often where I just flew under the radar. It just wasn't detected. Even therapists, doctors would be like, oh, she's fine. Cause I looked quote unquote, normal, quote unquote, atypical. And it wasn't until I was 21, 22 that I realized I had an eating disorder and I truly didn't know. Like I truly thought I was quote unquote normal. And it was my husband now, but boyfriend then who helped me and pushed me into that recovery. And I'm so thankful he did. Wow. It's so helpful to hear that distinction that you weren't ever trying to change your body at a young age. You were just a a sensitive soul who felt everything. (laughs) And and that could really make an eating disorder go under the radar because there's such a focus when people talk about eating disorders of this need for weight loss. But in reality, and I see this all the time in my practice, 
Sometimes we're just very aware of what's going on in our bodies and we're trying to control that. 100% perfectly said. Eventually it did turn into trying to control my body and figure out how it looked. It did, but it didn't start that way. It just, again, I was so anxious. I definitely had some OCD that was went undetected. Again, my family was so supportive. They didn't have the resources to understand that this was a full-blown eating disorder just presented differently than what they thought it might. I'm just so grateful for recovery. I do identify as fully recovered. I'm almost a decade in and I'm proud of that. And I know it served a purpose for me at one point in my life, but my goodness, is it worth it? Yeah. So worth it. So when your boyfriend, who's not your husband, when he was telling you, Hey, you might have an eating disorder, maybe you should get treatment. What was your reaction to that? Yeah. So he actually overheard me using behaviors. He kind of sat me down and I did not handle it well. (laughs) (laughs) I think I left his house. And was like, no. And he handled it with such grace. He was like, we don't have to talk about this now, but we, we do have to talk about this. And he just kind of kept meeting me with compassion. And I eventually sought out a therapist. And then I got, I created an outpatient team, which now is so synonymous with the work I do in that outpatient care and collaborative care. It's so funny though, because gosh, it was probably like six or seven months into recovery that I finally admitted I had an eating disorder. We were on a trip in San Diego. We lived out in Jackson Hole, Wyoming at the time. And we were out in San Diego on a trip. And I remember sitting like we were by the water and I was like, Sean, I have something to tell you. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, I have an eating disorder. And he was like, yeah, like we've established this. <laughs> but I do truly believe that, like, I didn't believe that it was that for so long until like, I really started to take away behaviors and understand like the, how possessive it was over my life. But I always look back at that moment and I'm like, duh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's one thing to have everyone telling you that you have an issue. And then there's another piece of acceptance to that that you have to take on. And so it just took you a few extra months of actual therapy and treatment to finally verbalize it and accept it. So that's really beautiful, even though kind of comical looking back. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Again, I think the way in which I did recovery just really worked for me. I was super motivated in recovery and I was lucky enough not to have like big T trauma, which really can be like a big roadblock for people in recovery and just lengthen their journey. And I went through that like intensive piece pretty quickly Mm -hmm. and then just maintenance and time healed me. That's Wonderful. I know that recovery journeys look so different from person to person. And so I'm also fully recovered and I feel really grateful that my process was also one that I was able to get through successfully. Very good to hear all of this. And so you had your outpatient team, you were able to manage to get to a place of full recovery within a few years, it sounds like. And then I know that chronic illness comes into play at some point. I know you went through a diagnosis. It sounds like about four years ago. So at that time, was there anything creeping in related to that, that you were unaware of? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, it's so interesting because I was in my twenties and like anyone in their twenties and thirties, even like where we think we're like indestructible. I was like a hustler still. I think I held on to those values in my eating disorder, but it was like 
again, like, I think it's a trait that I have can't change these traits, but I was using them as assets and eventually they became liabilities. I went and got my master's in clinical mental health counseling. I was working five jobs. I was way overdoing it. And I was like, I'm in recovery, but I was still just way overdoing it. And I ended up actually, yeah, four years ago, I ended up in the ER multiple times and I lost my sight. I started losing my sight. I was diagnosed with a really rare neurological disease called intracranial hypertension. And I got brain surgery for that. And it was interesting though. At that time I was like, oh, it's just this one thing. And then I'm going to like be better. I'm going to be fine. Cause I was very able-bodied, very quote unquote healthy. And then things started to fall apart really, really scary symptoms. My body was not acting like it used to, or it should. I ended up at the Mayo Clinic a couple of times and they ended up by diagnosing me with a genetic disorder, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a really rare and complex chronic illness that affects your connective tissues. It presents different in every single person because your connective tissues literally hold your body together. It's like a whole body system thing. Some people that just means have hypermobile joints. And for some people, it means like me having 12 neuro procedures and being disabled, needing a mobility service dog and a rollator. And it's really drastically, drastically affected my life, flipped my life upside down completely. But it's interesting when you ask about how that affected my recovery, I look back and I mean, I always had this genetic disease. I mean, I was dislocating things left and right. I was in the hospital a lot, dislocating elbows, knees, was really, really sick a lot. My digestion was always messed up. And that's where I think like, oh my goodness, if I knew I had Ehlers-Danlos when I was younger, like, I wonder if my eating disorder would have been as strong as it was, if I could have understood what my body was doing and how to move my body and what not to do with my body. So there's a lot there. And yeah, in the past four years have been a journey, but I would say when I was diagnosed with the intracranial hypertension, I was just like, oh, I can get over this and then I can go back to my life which I think is an interesting thing because I can't do that anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. That must've been terrifying to yeah. see that loss of ability in a life you had, you know, yes. it sounds like it totally it changed. Yeah. Yeah. It still is. I talk a lot with my clients about perceived body betrayal, whether that be due to weight gain due to like, if you have some inner fat phobia and your fear of weight gain or, pain or immobility. And I speak to that from a place of experience when your body stops working and when your body starts hurting. And when you end up getting multiple brain surgeries and losing your sight and getting it back and then needing to change everything in your life and everyone else having to change due to that is heartbreaking. And it was like two recovery journeys where it's like, okay, healed myself from my eating disorder. And then I went through this piece where I was like, wait a minute, now my body's changing again because of inflammation and because of my illnesses. Cause a lot of comorbid illnesses come from Ehlers-Danlos that I have. I'm like, oh my goodness, I did all this work. Like, this is really frustrating. And it's so easy to get mad at your body. It's so easy to do that. But it, the thing is, is our body's doing everything it can to keep us alive. And even when it hurts and even when we're in pain and even when it's inconvenient. So I keep that perspective a lot. And I do a lot of that work on my own too, because I deal with it every day. Mm. That's really powerful. And 
also really fascinating to hear that you went through two body acceptance journeys. Yeah. Yeah. What was the biggest difference you would say between the two, the recovery mm. aspect and accepting maybe a changing body in recovery versus dealing with chronic illness and all the changes happening there? Yeah, there's so many things. One of the biggest things is I think there was a lot of hope. I know there was a lot of hope with eating disorder recovery because I had a wonderful team who told me and taught me that full recovery is possible. And I've always said that if someone told me your full recovery wasn't possible, I probably wouldn't have done it because recovery is hard. Like it's icky and it's messy and it ruins. Once you take away the egg, your life is like blows up. And you have to figure out how to gain that emotional resilience. And so if someone was like, Hey, full recovery is impossible. This is chronic. I would have been like, well, then what's the point? Cause this part sucks. Right. But then once you get to that other side, you're like, Oh, that's the point. So I think chronic versus recovered is a big difference. My progressive illnesses are the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, intracranial hypertension. I also have something called craniocervical instability and an immune disease that are all chronic. So those are two very different things. And that like, I could find a life without my ed, but I can't find a life without my illnesses. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of grieving there. There's a lot of grieving there. I always say this too, though, like I've been awake during brain surgeries as well as out and recovery was so much harder because you have to do the work on your brain. And like when you're getting brain surgery, the surgeon's doing the work on your brain. And I'm like yeah. mind blown thinking about that. I yes. <laughs> Sometimes when you're going through mental illness and recovery, you're like, I wish there was a brain surgeon who can just yes. my yes. eating disorder. And I, I don't have to do this myself. And then you've actually experienced that in some degree. Yeah. Absolutely. Literally. Yes. Going through recovery was so hard because it was all up to me and like making those changes. And I had the support, but in the end, it's up to you to make those choices and change and strengthen those neural pathways. You can't use surgery. And so that was a big difference for me too. Recovery is probably the hardest thing I ever did. And I've done some pretty hard things in the past four years, like some things that people wouldn't even be able to like fathom. So That's why it's like, wow, when people say they're ed warriors, it's like, you're really, truly a warrior because it is so hard. Mm -hmm. So hard. Yeah, it is so difficult. And it's really validating to hear that from someone who has gone through so much difficult other things in life, everything that you've gone through to hear that recovery is still probably the hardest thing you've been through probably helps a lot of listeners. I hope so. (laughs) I think it's sometimes like we get on Instagram and I'm probably guilty of this and that like we follow these accounts that are so inspirational and talking about full recovery and body image acceptance. It's like, I never shared because I wasn't on Instagram at the time. And I wasn't even aware I had anything disorder. I never shared how hard the messy parts were like the really messy parts because So it's like when people maybe follow my page, they're like, oh my God, what a cool life. But like, they don't see that in between. Right. And I think we get sucked into this concept of like, this should be easier, that full recovery, like it should come quicker. It should be easier. We should be there too. And it's like, no, it's fucking hard. (laughs) (laughs) Really? I hope it's okay to swear. (laughs) It's, It's really, really hard. And so 
I, I hope that people can hear that out there. It's like, cause you have to make these choices, the choice to eat, even when you're not hungry and you feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I hope that that validates someone's experience. Cause again, like I could go through four more brain surgeries and a bunch of spinal taps and all the things. And I still think eating disorder recovery is the hardest thing. Wow. Yeah. And there's so much blame that I hear when people have eating disorders, like I'm doing this to myself. This is all my fault. And so I don't know, it's just very validating to hear your story. So thank you for sharing that. So with chronic illness, there's also a lot of complicated medical dietary prescriptions that come into play. And I get asked this all the time. So I'm curious when you were coming down with this diagnosis, were doctors telling you to restrict in certain ways or change your diet? Okay. Yes. And no. So actually Terry Lynn and I, she's one of the, my graduates from my coaching curriculum. She is a coach as well and um, lives with chronic illness. And we just created this membership called chronically human, where we talk about this, where it's like living with chronic illness and eating disorder recovery, because it's like very hard because it kind of is counterintuitive and kind of counterproductive sometimes to what a treatment team might say. It's just complicated, right? Cause what, yeah. what you're saying And I am very blessed. I'm very privileged to live in a city that has a lot of LRSD&Low specialists. I see a surgeon who is like one of three in the world that works with my condition. And I found specialists throughout the country. So I'm very blessed to have that. So I don't get that misinformation from them because they know that eating isn't going to affect my genetics. That's just not how it works. <laughs> but diet culture sneaks into the medical fields like no other, where I have been to doctors and I have had clients that have had this diagnosis or dealt with chronic illness who are told, just take this out, try this cleanse, do this, restrict this, go on this diet. And I just think that's so problematic because basically what it's saying is if you eat differently, then you'll be better. If your body changes, then you'll be better. And my thought is, is that is them have them being the doctors, society, family, friends, being uncomfortable with the fact that it's not about the food and it's not about the weight that's making them sick. So therefore it could happen to them. Wow. I think it's a fear of contagion. Never heard of it framed that way before. Mm -hmm. It's a fear of like, we'll just try celery juice and just take out, take out this and take out that. And I'm not talking about like actual allergies. Right. But, and it's like, well, that should work and, or lose this weight. And they're not able to accept that it's not about the food and the weight. And if they do accept that, then that would mean it could happen to them. Mm. And I think that scares people. Yeah. When it is about food and weight, people feel a little bit more control. They feel like they could control it. So I totally see that connection. I've just never really seen it framed that way, as I said, which is really different. And I agree with that now that you say it. I mean, it makes sense, right? This concept of health, it's like, we think that it's something that we own, but it's so fragile. Like the fragility of able bodies and healthy bodies is astronomical. I mean, 
it's ableist fragility. It's just, it's very real. And never once did I think I'd be in this situation ever. I was going to spin classes and bar and like, I loved movement. That was a big part of my recovery was movement. And now it's like, whoa, I can't move. I can't do the things. And there's a lot of grieving to do there. And it's scary for others to admit that that could happen to them. Mm, So true. So can you tell me more about ableist fragility and what you mean by Um, that? And also what ableism is, because this is a term that for someone like I'm in an able body more or less. And I would say, I didn't hear this term for a few years ago. It's a fairly new term. Yeah, I, I didn't either. It's because of ableism that we didn't yeah. hear about it. It's so pervasive and I'm learning about it. I, I'm learning about it and from my disability. Like I'm learning about it through experiencing it, which again is ableism, right? That like, we're not even really taught about it until we experience it. And don't get me wrong. I hold so much privilege. I am aware of my privilege. I'm a white woman. I am straight, cisgendered. Like I hold a lot of privilege there, but in the regards of my body and how it functions and what I need to do to stay alive and get around, there's not much privilege there. (laughs) So that's what ableism is really about. It's about how we view health and worth. Mm. I think it's tied to diet culture and racism in every way. I think the way we, a very Eurocentric view of the way we deem worth in a human is if they are white, if they are thin, if they are healthy, whatever that means, and they're able-bodied, straight, whatever that might mean. So I think it's like, we have this picture of what worth looks like. And if we deviate a little bit, we're like, okay, we can accept that. But then again, I think as it starts to deviate so much where we're like, oh my God, could that happen to me? It becomes this fear. And I think ableist views and ableism is driven by fear and it's driven by maybe hate, but I think more by fear that that could happen to us annoyance. It's like looking at people with disabilities and thinking is disability, just someone in a wheelchair. That's what I was taught that like Mm -hmm. disability was just someone in a wheelchair who literally couldn't walk. And that's not what disability is. That blew my mind when I was going through this process. It's like some days I can walk throughout the house and some days I can't. Whoa. Some days I use my, well, I use my rollator everywhere, but some days I have to use a wheelchair or some days my, I have a mobility service dog. He's working way harder one day than the other. Some people might have a disability that's less acute than mine and just as valid. So I think it's how we view what disability is. And then we view like the messaging behind it too. If someone's disabled, does that mean that they're less worthy? Does that mean that they're lazy? Like what preconceptions do we have about this? And so that's like a I guess, somewhat simple way of, I think, describing ableist and ableism when it has to do with our bodies. Mm, Very well put. I think from my perspective, what I've seen also is this assumption of health Mm -hmm. that seems to be linked to ableism too, is like looking at a person and assuming they're healthy and not knowing the real story. Yes. And that right there is so synonymous to at least my recovery journey. Mm. I quote unquote looked okay. And you know, the sick enough complex, it's like, was I sick enough? 
that comes into play with chronic illness and ableism and my disability for sure. Where it's like, well, am I disabled enough? Am I, or people look at me and they're like, she looks healthy. Like she looks fine. Why does she have a dog? Why does she have a, a rollator? This assumption that my body is a billboard for my worth and health. Yes. Yeah. You're like blowing my mind today because <laughs> I hadn't thought of that either. Like putting it in that way, you're like, people assume your body is a billboard for your work yeah. and health. That's such a interesting way to think of it. People are going to look at you. It's like an advertisement. This yes. is how valuable she is. This is how able she is. When in reality, that is not the case. It's, yeah. uh, yeah, it's, it's really heartbreaking to think about, especially yeah even invisible illness and how confusing of an experience that must be. And even yes. with eating disorders, like when someone goes through weight loss, mm-hmm. like there's a individual in my life who was recently diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos yes. and lost her ability to swallow food properly for a while. Yes. And it was really scary because the weight loss happened yep. and people were praising the weight loss. Oh, and in reality, it's a terrifying thing to lose your ability to swallow food. And this person's not going to be announcing from the mountaintops. Oh, well, I can't swallow food right now. And they don't owe anyone that explanation either. Right. It's like other people's discomfort. Like I've noticed, and I'm so sorry to hear about your loved one. I mean, I know that that it's just, it's so complex. It's so complex. And like looking at someone, we just think like, oh, they're happy. They're healthy. They're worthy. It's like, no, that's just, that's just not it. Like that is so off base. I mean, we really just don't know people's story and other people don't owe us an explanation. Yes. You know, the question, how are you? That question is so well-intentioned and I love it and I use it, but my goodness, is it so much heavier than it used to be? Because now that I deal with progressive chronic stuff, the question, how are you is so loaded. Yeah. Cause it's like, I'm not that great. And I know depending on who's asking the question, they want to know if I'm better. They want to know if I'm cured or fixed. Mm. And that's not always the intent. Sometimes it's like, Hey, how are you? But if it's coming from someone I know, like, they're like, how are you? Like, is, is it better? And I'm like, no, I'm with this forever. Yeah. And it, that makes them uncomfortable. The fact that I'm unwell. Right. And it's a really loaded question for you because now you are sort of burdened with their emotions, like how you respond will probably impact them, which is unfair. So if you're like, oh, I'm actually really still struggling. They're going to feel sad for you. (laughs) Now you're like, now I just made them feel sad. So to protect yourself, I assume people who go through (laughs) eating disorders go have this too. You just say, I'm doing really well. I'm doing better. So that it doesn't have to turn mm-hmm. the vibe down or make someone feel bad. And that creates a wedge between you and the person you're with and the relationship. And it's really it's not authentic. You're right. I'm so lucky for my husband and my family to have be so supportive. One of the things that my husband and I agreed on years ago is we don't ask that question. Like if he comes home from work and he's like, Hey, how are you feeling? We don't ask that. Cause I was like, I'll tell you if I really need you to know. But other than that, like this might be my, my baseline, but I'm just like, not well. And I'm going to make the best of it. Like I'm a true believer that 
we have the choice to either lean into the doom and gloom or figure out how we can live for the now and live and, and live bigger. Hence my service dog, hence my mobility aid, hence being like moving to a one level home, things like that. It's like making adjustments so that I can be hopeful and joyful in the moment. Mm -hmm. But I think other people view it as like, oh, she's just like kind of leaning into this, accepting that she's forever going to be sick. And it's like, no, my life is so much bigger now that I've accepted that this is how my body is. Mm, Yes. Yes. I think that acceptance must be so relieving to be able to have that. I had a question while you were sharing that, which is this body betrayal piece, especially with chronic illness. And then there's this loss of hope, like things might not get better. It might be a case of just managing something the rest of your life. So you do feel that body betrayal, as you mentioned earlier, how do you start fostering a sense of hope when something is so chronic and how do you foster self-love in that case as well? Yeah. It is a hard, I'm going to be honest. I don't think you'll ever get anyone or at least myself ever gets to this place of hope and acceptance. I think it's a constant practice. Mm -hmm. I do. Mm -hmm. I think that some days are really hard and some days I'm like, I can't believe that this is my life. And then there's some days where I'm like, I got this. I'm proud of this. And so I think the expectation that it's not going to be a destination, that it will always be a journey is really important to lay that out there. That some days are hard when I just emotionally, and then some days are easier, but I think really looking at my body as a vessel in recovery, a mantra that I used a lot was don't love your body for what it looks like, love your body for what it can do. And now I'm, then I was like, well, what if your body stops doing? Cause mine, <laughs> mine stopped doing. Yes. Oh my gosh. See, like through able-bodied lens, yes. I might not have seen that as a, of course not a problematic statement. Right. I didn't either. I was saying it like shouting it from the rooftops. Cause I was like, this makes so much sense. And then I went like started losing my sight and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> is my body not worthy now? Because that's what I was telling myself. And so it was reframing my relationship with my body and building that and saying my body's a vessel and it's not about what it can do. Instead, it's about what it can experience. And your life gets smaller when you have chronic illness. It just does, especially in a pandemic. (laughs) It gets smaller. (laughs) Um, I'm also immune compromised with my immune disease. So it gets small. And I think it's figuring out how to make life right now worth living and experiencing, creating your circle, creating your support system and allowing yourself to live. And if you can, I think it's like, I picked up a lot of things that I dropped off. Like I changed my work around. I put so much of my passion into my work, but I also take a lot of time to rest and a lot of time to meditate and a lot of time to rest again and go to therapy and talk with my family and build a support system and find new things that have nothing to do with my ability. So, or mobility. So like reading, I picked that up again, little tiny things like knitting, where I'm like, okay, I'm not going to get the same high from this maybe that I would from the endorphins release when you go for a run or you, you take a yoga class, but it's not about my, my mobility and ability to move and do it's about experiencing 
So I think that reframe has been really powerful for me. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Do you find that when you were going through recovery, you said movement always was part of your recovery. Was there ever a time you had to stop your movement so that you could heal? Yes, absolutely. When I was in like probably the first year of recovery, I really had to kind of take it out of my coping skills toolbox, right? Mm -hmm. Like it was like the way in which I numbed. And then I discovered like movement in regards to like breath and yoga and ways in which I can express my body in a really healthy, um, non-strenuous, non-obsessive way. And it just became a huge part of my life in regards to like, just like, I loved getting outside. I loved moving my body and seeing how strong it could get and like what it could do and the joy in moving it was just so wonderful. And so that was truly taken away from me and Mm. I'm redefining what that looks like now, but it's heartbreaking at times. And the thing I have to remember is it's not no matter how much my body hurts or what it's doing or how much it might be hurting my life. I can't be mean to it. I have to feed it. I have to love it, treat it well, treat it with kindness. And that can be really tough because it's like, again, that synonymous journey with recovery where it's like, it's not being very nice to me. It's being almost a little abusive to me, but I still have to feed it. I still have to be compassionate to it. And that can feel really counterintuitive. Mm. Oh, so, so real. I feel like the idea of being kind to your body is really difficult to wrap your head around for a lot of people, but in your case and everyone's case, the real, I guess the real healing comes when you can accept that my body is actually on my team. Like you said, even when you are in extreme pain, it's still trying to keep you alive. Yes. Yes. It's always trying to keep us alive. I mean, gosh, look at the world we live in right now. Like during this pandemic, it's like our bodies also respond and like try and keep us alive with this virus. But then that is what makes us more sick is by like creating all these white blood cells and getting all the mucus and that's our body doing the work. So just look at that. I mean, something that we've all experienced. Yeah. I think it's, it can be really tough, like not being hungry, being nauseous. It's like, Oh gosh, this is coming up again, but (laughs) it's like, I've done this, but now I know that it's just a constant journey and I just have to treat it with kindness. And it's really, really tough. Mm -hmm. And how has your relationship with your body changed Mm -hmm. over the past few years? Well, I mean, my body changed a lot, so not just mobility wise, but my body expanded. I mean, I gained a lot of weight and it was like, again, I was like, come on, like we're doing this again. (laughs) And I had, yeah, I had to look at my inner fat phobia again. I had to redefine how I dressed my body. That was a big thing. Like I was dressing for my older body and like how I dress my body now and how I view my body. And I really lean into body acceptance, accepting that my body will forever change and it will forever grow. And I cannot micromanage my biology, no matter what diet culture tells me. And so that has been a big thing for me is knowing and accepting. I can't micromanage anything and letting go a little bit more. I was put on some restrictive protocols at times with my immune disease. And I just had to really advocate for myself and say, like, I can't, I can't take out all these foods. Like, it's just not sustainable. I can't do this. 
And wow, that's powerful to know. Yeah. I think it's really intimidating to stand up and advocate for yourself to medical professionals. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I've always had like certain allergies with foods and stuff that's different. But like, when it comes to like, I just, it's not realistic to me. Like I, the Mayo clinic and stuff, it's like, Oh, like go get organic, like all the organic foods, make relationships with the farmers in your community. Like, I'm like, I'm not going to do that. That is, (laughs) that is so unrealistic. (laughs) And like, I will go and get like frozen meat. Like I'm not going to buy it from a farmer. If you can do that, great. But like, here I am a 30 year old, like still working and living with a disabled body. I'm not going to go like make a relationship with a farmer because of organic meat, you know, like it's just, that wasn't happening for me. Yeah. But again, it was like, no, you should do this. You should do that. Take this out, take that out. So yeah, it Mm -hmm. it was, I just had to advocate for myself and say no. Mm -hmm. And that's really a sign of your healthy self coming in. Like all of that recovery wisdom was able to probably support you throughout that experience. Oh my gosh. Yes. I mean, I'm so glad I went through it like this. There's part of me that said, I wish I knew I dollars damn low. So I could have known if the earlier diagnosed, the better, because the less damage you're doing and you know what to avoid and how to strengthen and all this stuff, the later on in your life, it's diagnosed, the more chance is going to be just more damage has been done. So I wish there's a part of me that wishes I knew, but then there's a part of me that's like, I'm so glad I learned and built my emotional resilience through my eating disorder recovery in order to handle this now Mm, without using like maladaptive coping mechanisms, without reaching for whatever behaviors I'm just, I'm in it. Yes. That's such a relatable statement, even for myself, because I went through recovery really young. And when I got through to the other side, I felt like I had a new level of superpowers to get through life. Like we had the tools. I was connected to my emotions. I had this huge amount of compassion, like my judgmental side completely disappeared. At least most, like I, I, I just felt like there was a huge transformation that empowered me throughout the rest of my life. And those qualities still kick in when I am faced with other challenges. Yes. Yes. Your toolbox becomes so much more vast and strong and like just amazing and complex. I mean, I just feel like I am, and I am not saying that this has been like rainbows and butterflies. Like there are so many tears and breakdowns and things like that, but I'm not reaching for things that are destructive. I'm just saying like, okay, I'm going to cry and I'm going to have like a really hard time with this. And then I'm going to move on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would have never been able to say that back in my eating disorder days. Mm-hmm. It's really cool to be able to see that personal transformation. And I hope everyone listening can hopefully one day reach that point where you don't have to lean on your eating disorder. You can use all the tools and keep them throughout life. Everything you're learning now, you can keep with you moving yes. forward. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you know, like I've always been, I'm, I'm, I'm open about like, I'm definitely a workaholic. I, it's something I work through and constantly going to be a journey for me, but mm-hmm. I'm also really blessed in that. Like my work, I find purpose in my work and passion yeah. and with chronic illness, like a big piece in finding joy and happiness is finding purpose. 
So like, that's kind of been one of my traits that was a liability for a long time and now has become an asset in that, like I can put when I'm working and managing my hours better, I can heal also this like emotional piece of me that just needs a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Purpose is really powerful in, in life. And it, unfortunately it's not always easy to discover, I think, but I think it is really nice to hear how you were able to channel your workaholic nature into passion and purpose. Do you have any advice for people who are still struggling with their purpose and how to find it? It's interesting because my problem became my purpose. (laughs) So, (laughs) so did mine. (laughs) I feel like that was a blessing and a curse at the same time, but mostly. So that was it for me too. And that like, I, there was just so much darkness and I finally found light and I wanted to spread that to others. And advocacy was something that just made sense to me. And then going and get my master's, it just all made sense. I truly don't think for everyone finding purpose is as like euphoric as it sounds. I think sometimes our purpose is like to love or to be there for someone or our purpose in the moment is just to like cuddle up with a loved one and enjoy really good food. I don't think we have to be doing all of this like hard, crazy work for the future. We can just look at now and say like, right now, my purpose is to be X, Y, Z. I really do believe that because there have been moments in this journey where I don't know what the future holds in regards to longevity and what it might be. And it's like, you've just got to live in the moment because we just don't know what life holds for us. Yeah. That's really beautiful advice. And very wise. And I think it can be difficult to accept those one word purpose, like to be, because we're kind of enculturated to think purpose comes from action. Yes. Yep. Achievement. Yeah. Action achievement. So how do you manage that day to day? Like how do you unlearn? Yeah. It's a lot of unlearning. And I think that that, so that mentality that you're talking about is ableism. I believe because not all of us can achieve and can do all those things and be as productive or productivity looks very different for some people than it does for others. And I think it's redefining what that means for you. For me, I used to define my, after recovery, I defined my worth as like, as much as I could pack into the day Mm -hmm. and that burnt me out. And then I ended up sick and then it was like, well, then now what? And so I think it's like, again, building your support circle, looking at what is my life now and how am I contributing to my life? Mm -hmm. And if that is rest and love and compassion, then like you're doing an amazing job. I think that's so true and a helpful reminder for everyone, especially if you're living with chronic illness or mental illness or something that takes a lot of energy and effort to manage day to day. Just managing that and getting through the day doing that. That's is amazing. Enough. Yes. That's a, yeah, that can be viewed as an achievement, even though we want to get away from the idea of achieving. Yes. Change your definition of what maybe achievement looks like or what your success, your version of success looks like. Absolutely. Yes. Like, even with like me and my husband have had to really change how we even look at 
progress with my illness and getting better. Right. Like, so again, like that question, how are you feeling? I used to take that. And he used to take that as a grade for how, like I, who I am like that day or how my day was. Yeah. And it's like, when it comes down to it, sometimes my physical feelings, like my, my pain and my immobility and symptoms do majorly affect my life. And then some days they just don't, I just have to live with them and alongside them. And I have to live with it and alongside it. And it's not necessarily this grade of how good or bad my life is. And so it's not like, Oh, I didn't take any, I used to say things like, Oh, I didn't take any meds today. And it's like, that's not an achievement. Like let's not, I need to not measure my worth and achievement by like the fact that I didn't take meds because that's then giving my pain days like a bad grade. And I'm just as worthy on my bad days. It just looks different. Yes. I love that perspective. And I think that's also very relatable. I've heard people say, oh, I didn't take my medicine today. And Uh it's like a weird glorified thing to live without it. But in reality, it's really unkind to deny yourself something that you need to function day to day. Absolutely. And that might be stigmatized by society and others, but if it helps you and it's truly helpful and healthy for you, then do it. The amount of times I'm so bitter about it, but the amount of times people will say things like, I would never take pain medication. I'm like, well, you obviously haven't been in that much pain (laughs) because if you're blacking out and throwing up from pain, you got to take pain medication. Like you have a central nervous system. It's not like you're just like immune to pain. Mm -hmm. So again, it's like, there's this glorification of not needing external help. And it's like, no, we live in a day of modern medicine. Like let's thrive. Yes. I heard someone say this once, and I know we're coming up to the end of time, but someone said there's a difference between pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. And I think when you think about that, it's like pain, you can feel the pain, process the pain, manage the pain and get through it. Or you just suffer. And in this case, it might look like denying yourself the medicine, denying yourself the rest, the connection, all of those things that you need to thrive while you're in pain. If you deny yourself those things, it turns into suffering. Wow. And, yes. And like, I was like, whoa, like, wow. Yes. <laughs> so true. Well, that's kind of like what I was trying to get at with the doom and gloom, right? It's like, we all have it and it's normal to suffer, but it is a choice to move out of it. You've got to move out of it. And like, you have to figure out how, and that makes a lot of sense when you, I love that. And I'm going to steal it. (laughs) I'm so glad I could uh, (laughs) to your work. Anyway, I just wanted to say, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. You are a true inspiration. You are a light in this field. And I am so grateful to have this chat with you today. Me too. Me too. Thank you so much. You're so welcome.